Beloved, when I was on staff at Grace Community Church in Southern California, uh, every Monday morning we would have a senior staff meeting. Uh, John MacArthur would be at maybe half of those or another. And I remember, and we'd have an agenda, even as Gary mentioned agenda in his prayer. Uh, and one morning I went in there and I saw on the agenda, Tom Pennington would prepare the agenda items and we'd discuss them as we would go through. And I came in one morning and it was the second or third bullet and it just said polygamy. And so I said, well, are, are we for it or against it? <laughs> in jest. <laughs> and you, know, you make that joke because from our standpoint in uh, United States of America on this side, what is there to discuss? What you know, possibly could we discuss about polygamy? With the right understanding of Scripture, we understand that from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, God made one man and one woman. So even the polygamy that you see in Scripture was a sin. So what could there be to discuss? Now the situation was, because of the international ministry of Grace Community Church and John's sermons and such, we would get questions from all over the world. And the situation was, we were getting questions from certain countries where polygamy was legal. And the question was, in the context, there were different flavors of it, but what do you do when there's a man with more than one wife, with children from different wives, and God blesses this family with salvation, with the husband, with the different wives? What do you do at that point? Does the man just divorce his second and third and fourth wives? Uh, well, I mean, where does that come in? Does, how does that fit in? Do you, you know, illegitimize the children as a result of that? I mean, does he have responsibilities? The list goes on and on. And so that was a tremendous example that reminded me at that point, or maybe at least made me aware at that point, that while I'm in the sheltered enclave of the United States of America and the freedoms and the privileges that when we take the black and white truth of Scripture, the murky world that sin creates is not always clear as to what is the best application of that. And we didn't have any brilliant gems of wisdom other than just kind of applying 1 Corinthians 7 in general, which God basically says, however God called you as a Christian, be the best Christian you can be in that state to go forward. And I thought of this this morning because please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We come to a passage in this magnificent letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. It deals with a very similar situation. And when Paul gives his instructions to slaves and to masters, we need to understand that he was writing to a context that was very outside of our environment. It was a situation that was very alien to our normal way of thinking in 21st century America, and even in many ways of what we might think when we hear the word slave and master going back to 17th and, or excuse me, 18th and 19th century America. Beloved, our passage this morning, I'm going to just cover the first couple of verses, but it's in this section of verses 5 through 9. Please follow along, beloved, as I read the Word of God in your hearing in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Beloved, this is, again, the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it from your heart as such. Now, one thing we should remind ourselves of, that in our Bibles, the chapter divisions and the verses were not part of the original text. The original text in each of the books of the Bible was just a free-flowing text. Uh, There were some indicators, like in Psalms and others, that would indicate what we would look at as chapters, but many of them, such as this one letter, the chapter divisions and the verses were put after the fact, not under the superintending and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they, they are, of course, very useful and helpful. But sometimes the chapter divisions, which came after God wrote his word through these men, we might look at and say, that's maybe not the best chapter division. And this is one case where I would do that because what we see here in Ephesians from what we have in our Bibles of chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9, is really one section of where God, through the Apostle Paul, is giving instruction on relationships. And we see six different peoples, three pairs of wives and husbands, of children and parents, and now we come to the third couplet, slaves and masters. And what is at stake in all of these is the heart of human relationship and organization as prescribed and ordained, well, as prescribed, ordained, or governed by God, and that is authority and submission. And we know, beloved, there is, even as we have already seen coming through Ephesians, there is true freedom only in Christ, and there is true authority only coming from God, even to those at the human level that would have authority vested by God. And, beloved, because God is not a God of chaos, Willing submission and loving leadership make these things work well together. So, before we really start unpacking the verses, or at least the parts that will begin here this morning, we want to answer the question and have a right understanding of the slave-master relationship. What it is and what it isn't, historically in that context. And then, what does God say here, and what does God not say here? And even expand the scope to the whole Bible, what does God say about slaves and masters in all of Scripture, and what does God not say? And by the way, by way of application, understand this, that when we look at this slaves and masters, and leading up to this, you may have heard me say employees and employers, there is definitely some overlap, but it is not a one-to-one correspondence, and we'll cover that some time here. But understand this, the majority, actually all of us in our life have fallen in both camps at one point or another. And the majority, probably the vast majority of us, even at this point, still fall in both categories. There may be some people that in 
the workplace doesn't have, don't have anyone underneath them and any kind of authority vested by God over them. And there are very few people that don't have anyone that they need to be accountable to or report to. Even CEOs at one level report to the board of directors. So maybe an independent business owner might be an exception or would be an exception of one that doesn't right now fall in both categories. But the point is what God says through Paul to slaves and masters applies to all of us. And it is the word of God, so it is profitable for us. And beloved, what we see here in verses 5 through 9 is that God calls all believers, whether slave or master, slave or free, to mutual accountability and mutual respect and love as part of being in the body of Christ, in the one reconciled new man that he has already written about earlier in the letter. Well, let's Take a look at what the slave-master relationship is and what it's not. The word slaves here is the word doulos, meaning slave. It's not diakonos, which is servant or what we would get our uh, deacon word from. Doulos comes from an original root meaning to tie or to bind. And we remember that Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a major city. It was one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire, slavery was very widespread. The best estimates that historians look at around this time was that there were probably around 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which would have been about one-third of the entire population. Now, understand this, slavery in the Roman Empire at that time was not based on ethnicity. Slaves could be purchased, they could be inherited, they could be taken because of bad debts. Most prisoners of war in the world at that time would be taken, or at least many prisoners of war would be taken into slavery. Uh, children who would be abandoned by their father were oftentimes taken into and sold as slaves. Or convicts, people that were convicted of a crime, part of the penalty at times could be having them go into slavery. And the bottom line is slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life. And when I say that, I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying that is the reality there. Again, massive amounts of slaves. I said about one-third of the population of the Roman Empire was estimated to be slaves. If you have heard of the city of Attica, uh, some historians say that the slaves of Attica were four times as numerous as the citizens, the Roman citizens of Attica. Now, what kind of slaves were there? There were the manual labor kind of slaves. A landowner might have dozens of slaves, or even if they were a large landowner, perhaps hundreds of slaves. There were household slaves, which for the audience in Ephesus, that would be what most of them would think about when they think of slaves. Most Roman households had one or two slaves as part of their household servants, as part of their household slaves. There were also professional slaves, clerks, cashiers, bookkeepers, doctors, teachers, administrators. Uh, some slaves were better educated than <clears throat> their masters. One other point to note here as well, slavery in Rome wasn't necessarily lifelong because slaves at time, at time as, as things went on in Rome in even the first century AD, slaves came to have the right to marry and to have a family and even to own property. And there are even some slaves that actually were masters of or owned other slaves. 
In AD 20, a decree of the Roman Senate dictated that slave criminals were to be tried in the same way as free men. And the slaves uh, would very often receive a modicum of payment and they could save over time to even purchase their freedom. And some historians say that most slaves that were slaves from a young age acquired their freedom and purchased their freedom by the age of 30. Now having said all that, it's not all one big giant rosy picture. Because of sin, because of the depravity of the human heart, Aristotle, who in many ways was a brilliant mind, he said a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The Roman writer Juvenal recorded the instance of a wealthy woman who one time crucified one of her slaves just because she wanted to, just for her good pleasure. Another historical account says that 400 slaves were killed under one roof because of the crime of one. So the understanding of slavery in Rome, the context was different than what we might think when we think of slavery. There were some parts of it that were just a normal kind of economic situation and there were some horrific aspects as well. This is why John Calvin, in his commentary, rightly said that the whole idea of slavery is totally against all the order of God's creation, that human beings fashioned in the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. But bringing ourselves back here to Ephesians, zeroing in on the main context of the Ephesian audience, as I indicated before, most Roman households would have one to two slaves. And the point here is we know clearly from the text that in the Ephesian congregation there would be slaves and there would be masters sitting in the same congregation, perhaps sitting next to each other. Uh, Just from a numerical standpoint, there would probably be more slaves than there were masters, but both would be present. Now, one other dimension is in the whole context of this section of chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 9 here, again, the Apostle Paul is talking about human relationships. And the most immediate understanding of the Ephesian audience would be in the context of household and household slaves. Many commentators and many pastors even refer to that section 522 to 69 as God's household codes or the household codes given by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. So when you have, if you've been here before and you've heard me say slaves, master, and then just say employees, employers, there is some overlap, but it is absolutely not the same thing. And maybe the best way to help us understand the kind of dynamic here, it would be kind of a combination of household servants like a butler or a nanny in the context of household slaves, Uh, the employee and the employer relationship, as well as the vile practice of wicked slavery and kidnapping, such as in the 18th and 19th century American slavery. And just even a side note on that, this wicked, vile aspect of the kind of slavery that most likely we think of in our history is not unique to America. Now, it certainly doesn't justify the vile practice, but most every ethnicity at one time or another has put other ethnicities into slavery because of sin, and it still takes place even to this day. So, that's just kind of a high-level summary of what the slavery that Paul is talking about 
is and what it's not. But what does God say about the slave-master relationship and what does he not say in the Bible in general and here in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9? Now, one of the issues that people and that we need to deal with is the word of God doesn't directly condemn slavery as an institution. The Apostle Paul doesn't do that here. And many people who have a desire to try to undermine and attack Scripture will point that out. But it should be noted that nowhere does it ever condone slavery. And in fact, one of the distinctions and one of the differences we see here when Paul addresses the slaves and master as opposed to wives and husbands and children and parents, in the first two cases, Paul makes it very clear that what he is talking about, he's talking about something that is ordained by God, the marriage from the very beginning, the fifth commandment of children and parents. There's a glaring absence of any kind of mention because God does not condone, nor in any way, shape, or form does God ordain slavery. And in fact, the Bible absolutely, directly, explicitly undermines slavery from the inside out. Paul's driving concern here, the great message of all of Scripture, the main message of all of Scripture, what should be our driving concern, always should be, is namely not man's relationship to fellow man, but first and foremost, man's relationship to God. The former, the relationship of man to fellow man, as important as it is, that has temporal connotations and ramifications. Our relationship to God has eternal connotations and ramifications and consequences and blessings or eternal curse. So again, the concerns of this world, whatever they may be, slavery, abortion, homosexuality, the list goes on and on. As great as they are, they are not the main driving import. For us, as Christians, as children of the Most High God, we are not in the world. God did not leave us in the world to try to reform the world. God left us in the world to be used by God to save men and women out of the world. And by doing that, there will be the blessing and the effect of having pockets of reformation in cities, in countries, and so forth. And the danger is when the peripheral becomes central, the central becomes peripheral, and then eventually the central becomes marginal. That's why the whole idea of focusing first on social justice or this sin or that sin. And many times I've had people say, you know, why don't you address this issue in our society or that issue? And there's nothing wrong with that. So if you've done that or you're thinking about doing that, you are welcome to do that. And I do occasionally, so don't, don't let me misspeak what I'm saying here. But always the thrust of what we want to do from this pulpit in our classes and our fellowship is unveil, unpack, unleash the pure, unadulterated word of God, the black and white truths of Scripture. Galatians 3.28, Paul there wrote to the church in Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the beauty of this 
magnum opus creation of God in the one new reconciled humanity. Paul in Galatians, Paul here in Ephesians, is not saying that these don't exist. Of course they exist. What he is saying is they are totally and completely subservient, again, to the one new reconciled man in Christ. Beloved, all earthly distinctions are leveled in the body of Christ and in the kingdom of God. We are pilgrims of eternity. We are a colony of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is where we belong. That is where we belong, and this is where we belong. Also in the context of slave, we know that Paul calls himself very often a slave of Christ. In his letter to the Romans, Philippians, Titus also identifies himself as a slave of Christ. Peter, in his first letter, both half-brothers of Jesus, James and Jude, refer to themselves as slaves of Christ. John, in his apocalypse, in his revelation of Jesus Christ, refers to himself as a slave of Christ. So I am a slave. You are a slave if you are an adopted son or daughter. If you are born again, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, praise God, thank God that you are a slave of his. As such, that means we belong to him. We march to the beat of his drum. We follow his word. We follow his commission. We go in his ways, in the footsteps of our master. We are conformed to his image, and we long for his exaltation. How about Old Testament Israel? Uh, The Old Testament nation of Israel had slaves, but God governed their treatment and protection. And there were instructions from the Lord about voluntary slaves as well as involuntary slaves. Voluntary slaves, a person could put themselves into slavery to pay off an insurmountable debt, for example. And if it was a good relationship, like a house servant or a healthy employee-employer relationship, to bring it to our modern vernacular, the slave could decide to remain in that servitude even if his time or her time of freedom came up. Turn for a moment to Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 17. Deuteronomy 15, verse 12, God says through Moses to the nation of Israel, If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. And when you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 15, and you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Just pause there for a second. And even there, we see the beautiful same kind of teaching and principle that we see here in the New Testament in Ephesians, where God talks about the blessed relationship of husband and wife as a picture of Christ and his bride, or of child and parent, of us as children of God our Father. So also here, he reminds the nation of Israel as he's giving them instruction and guidance to corral around this institution of slavery that was extant in their midst, that they themselves were once slaves before God rescued them from Egypt. Verse 16, 
And it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an awl and pierce it through his ear into the door and he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maid servant. So that's an example of voluntary slavery of someone selling themselves into slavery and then even loving the household that they were in and wanting that to just be the rest of their life. God also does give very clear, very strict instruction about involuntary slavery. When we think of the vile practice of slavery that we most likely have in our mind, in Exodus 21, verse 16, listen to what God says to the nation of Israel there. He who kidnaps a man, again, Exodus 21, verse 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So, the slave traders who kidnap human beings to sell them into slavery fall under the death sentence from God. So God does directly condemn aspects of the wicked, vile nature of slavery. So we need to understand that. But back to God's main interest, to Paul's main interest in Ephesians, God's main interest, even in the Bible, is man's relationship to God. All the Word of God's stress, emphasis, is given to this problem. This is the great message. This is the first message. And, beloved, by the way, even historically, even in first century A.D., the gospel, the good news, immediately began to undermine the institution of slavery in the first century century. Beloved, the good news lit a fuse which led to the explosion that destroyed the institution of slavery. Of course, it didn't abolish it from the world because we are still trapped in this present ministry in this sin-stained world, but where the gospel took hold, slavery would not stand. Because as I mentioned before, slave, or excuse me, Christianity destroys slavery from the inside out. The reconciled new man in Christ is a fatal shot into the belly of the death star of slavery, we could say. Beloved, what we'll see here in verses 5 through 9 is Paul drawing the attention of both the slave in Christ and the master in Christ of drawing the attention where? To Christ. That is the focal point. And by the way, just a side note, when Paul wrote to the immature church in Corinth, in chapter 7, when he was given, when you have the kind of seminal primary chapter of Paul instructing people to whatever state God has called you in, if you're single, great, serve the Lord as a single. If you're married, fantastic, serve the Lord there. If you're married to an unbelieving spouse, stay married. Be the best Christian that you can be in the condition in which God called you. In verses 21 and 22, 1 Corinthians 7, here's what Paul says to slaves. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. Beloved, that is the word of God. But for us, here in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, the point of application, the center of gravity, the gravitas for us in this passage is your ministry in the workplace. So, 
understanding that, how should work be viewed in our carefree culture? Is work from even a grand macro scale, is work a curse or is it a blessing? Is work to be avoided or embraced? Is your job a hindrance to your ministry or is your job a ministry given to you by God in and of itself? Is work tolerated? Work, not slavery. Is work tolerated by God or is work ordained by God? And Beloved, what we'll see in verses 5 through 8 are four motivations for your ministry in the workplace under the umbrella of God's command to you as a slave or as an employee. You are to work with reverence. You are to work with wholeheartedness. You are to work with eagerness. And you are to work with confidence. Now, we're going to be able to look at the first one of those here this morning. We'll pick up the latter three next week as well as depending on how my study goes and where my heart is directed, God's word to the masters as well. Beloved, work is ordained by God. Work is a gift from God to you. Work is your ministry to God and work is your mission field. And you beautiful homemakers, you have way more than a full-time job. Some of you may heard me say before, when my beloved Margie, uh, I remember when I used to uh, work and I was traveling around and people would say, what does your wife do? I said, oh, she has a way more important job and way more difficult job than mine because she was a homemaker. So these principles, dear ladies, apply to you. Maybe you're retired, okay? Well, Biblical retirement doesn't mean swinging in the hammock for the next 20 years. Biblical retirement means you have more time for ministry to your family, to your neighborhood, to your neighbors, to your church. So this applies to all of us. So, beloved, let's look at the first motivation for your ministry in the workplace given to you by God, namely that you are to work with reverence. And what we see here in verse 5 is obedience to the earthly master out of reverence to your heavenly father. Again, obedience to your earthly master out of your reverence to your heavenly father. First, your obedience to your earthly master. Paul, here, again, in the slave-master relationship, similar to the wives first and then the child first, so also here Paul addresses the subservient member of that couplet before he addresses the party that has the vested authority from God. And he says, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. Obey your masters. Now, it is true that to the wives, the child, and the slaves, Paul does tell them to submit. But here he uses two different words. He uses the word submit to your husbands to the wives which is a softer word there it's the idea of voluntarily wife place yourself under the rightful god-given authority of your husband but to the child and to the slave he says obey there is a distinction the word obey here hupakuo literally means to hear and obey it comes from the root word meaning here it's basically what your master tells you to do do it do it But he says, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. 
What he's doing here, what he means by that is he's specifically saying, I'm talking to you about your earthly masters. Literally, it's lords according to the flesh. And he's saying, I'm referring to your earthly masters rather than your heavenly master, namely your heavenly father. It's the same Greek phrase according to the flesh that Paul used when he wrote to the church in Colossae. And in Colossians 3.22, the New American Standard translators translated it, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. So that is what he is talking about here is your obedience to your earthly masters. Now, having said that, what, what comprises this obedience? What fuels that for us? What's, what's a motivation for this one motivation if we want? Well, again, work is ordained by God. We'll pause here to remind ourselves in Genesis 2 verse 15, before the fall, we read from Moses that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So, work is not a consequence of the fall. Work predates the fall. Work was ordained by God. Work is, therefore, inherently good because everything God created in his economy was good. So, work is ordained by God. Work is a gift from God to you. Solomon In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, writes, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. So your job is a gift from God to you. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't try to get a better job. That doesn't mean that if it's a difficult job, and even this being obedient to your master, being obedient to your employer, doesn't mean that you can't try to better your state in life. But as Jim Elliott uh, said, wherever God has you, be all there. While you are employed at that company, Uh, for that gardener, at that hamburger shop, whatever the case may be, be all you can be for the Lord in that position because that is a gift from God. Also, beloved, work is your ministry to God. Uh, Solomon, again, this time in Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. But, Turn to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. So, to be sure, I often talk about my ministry in the workplace. Your job is your ministry in the workplace. All of our ministry is, even the ministry that we are blessed to minister to one another, ultimately, all of our ministry is our ministry unto God. Acts 13, verses 1 and 2. Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Stop there. While they were ministering to the Lord. Beloved, I love that verse. Your job, your ministry in the workplace is a ministry unto the Lord. And I like the story that was told of the man that was carrying a load of bricks in a wheelbarrow. And somebody asked him, said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a cathedral for the Lord. Now, 
whether or not he was going to build an actual cathedral or not, that's a beautiful picture. If you say, would you like fries with that? If you're a Christian, that is your ministry to the Lord. That is God's gift to you. And then ministry is ordained by God. It's a gift from God. It's your ministry to God. Work is your mission field. Beloved, the witness of your life, your witness in the workplace, provides a platform for the gospel. Solomon, again, Proverbs 3, verse 4. You will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. When by God's grace and mercy we walk with God, we will find favor and good repute with men. And in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, or excuse me, uh, actually 1 Timothy 3, 7, let's do that. Uh, Paul, when describing one of the required qualifications of a man to be an elder, for a man to be a pastor, he says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. All Christians, we should all aspire and desire and try to live our lives in such a way that we have a good reputation with those outside the church. We may be persecuted for our faith. We may be, have the growing oppression because of our faith, and it sure seems like things are on a, a rocket sled in that direction in our country and in much of the Western world. So be it. But by God's grace and mercy, we can have a good reputation because of God's grace and mercy in our lives. And if people look down upon us, let them look down upon us because of our stand for the truth, not because of shoddy, poor, sloppy, lazy work or other things that we do. And our witness is at stake. In 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul gives two purpose clauses in his instructions to slaves in those two cases. In 1 Timothy 6.1, He says, he writes, Paul writes to Timothy, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And to Titus, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, he tells Titus to urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, purpose statement, they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior, in every respect. Beloved, it has been said often that the two wings of evangelism is proclamation and witness. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it is accompanied, it is according to God's word, adorned by your witness in the neighborhood in your family, and in your workplace. So work is a blessing to be embraced, not a curse to be avoided. And of course, being a Christian certainly does not excuse poor or half-hearted work. And I cringe when I see professing Christians do lazy, sloppy, poor work. Solomon, Proverbs 14, verse 23, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. So your worship, your ministry, your work, your life, let it be with excellence, with your whole being. Now, under the umbrella of this obedience to the earthly master, let me give a very pointed application that is uh, 
prevalent right now, and it's growing. I had a wonderful time of fellowship with one of our deacons, and the deacon sought me out because he wanted to multiply wisdom regarding his personal decision on whether or not to get the vaccination uh, for the China virus for COVID in light of the requirement coming from his employer. And I understand that this is getting wider and wider even in our body. Uh, I've tried to keep away from the extra biblical stuff around the whole COVID and the reaction to COVID and all the rest. I will say just a couple things about the vaccination. I am thankful for the vaccine because there are brothers and sisters among us that some cases I hadn't seen for a year who got vaxxed and they're at a point now where we are all worshiping together. So I praise God for that. There are others among us that don't want to take the vaccine, some because of ethical and moral reasons against the totalitarian, authoritarian seizure of power as we've gone from two weeks to flatten the curve to you need to get the vaccine to be a part of our society. Uh, there are others that don't want because of medical concerns. Now, the targeted application here is in Christ, you have freedom. A specific question that I got was kind of in the context of I don't want to get the vaccination because of the more, primarily from the ethical, moral concern I have over the direction that I see of this massive socialist communist takeover and the oppression that's coming in. I, I don't want to do that. There's some medical concerns as well. But the point here is, and what I communicated and what I communicate to anyone, if when you evaluate your ministry responsibilities, your ministry in the workplace, your requirement to be a provider for your household, if you decide that you need to take the vaccine, even though you don't want to, you are not capitulating to the forces of evil. Trust the Holy Spirit. So the point here is you have the freedom to take the vaccine if you are, even if you're in that one group that you don't want to take it, but you decide that that's what you need to do to continue your ministry, you have the freedom. And of course, you also have the freedom to say, I'm not taking that jab. Now, I'm sure having said that, that will open up many other questions, scenarios, and so forth. I and the other elders are open to have any discussion and fellowship around any of this. So, obedience to your earthly masters. Lastly, out of reverence for your heavenly Father. Beloved, understand this. The Bible does not allow for a distinction between the sacred and the secular. There's nothing in your life, ultimately, that's secular. For the child of God, everything you do is sacred. Abraham Cooper said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, mine. And what he says here is, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. And the point here is not fear and trembling of your earthly master, but fear and trembling of your heavenly father. You see, an element of fear enters into all of our relationships when we realize the essential sacredness of all relationships, even your ministry in the workplace. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, before Paul launched into the wives, husbands, child, parents, slaves, and masters, he said, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And he says, fear and trembling. Paul demonstrated this kind of fear and trembling in his ministry to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In his second biblically recorded letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 15, referring to Titus, he said, Titus' affection abounds all the more towards you, the Corinthians, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Or going even more away from the horizontal ministry and relationship towards the vertical relationship to God, Philippians 2.12 Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Or 2 Corinthians 13, test yourself, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Or lastly, if we want one last great demonstration of this joining together fear and trembling, the godly women that were, while the mighty rough fishermen apostles were fleeing like scared rabbits, the godly courageous women were there at the tomb Mark 16, verse 8, the last verse in Mark. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So, beloved, that's the kind of environment that God calls us to be obedient to our master, to our employers. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, the Christian doesn't merely do things because they're good and right and because it's wrong to do certain other things. The mark of the Christian is he does everything as unto the Lord in the fear of Christ because Christ is his, and I'll add, or her Lord. Beloved, most of us don't spend the majority of our lives up on the mountaintops of joy or deep in the valleys of sorrow. We're usually on the plane of everyday life, in our ministry in the home, in our ministry in our neighborhood, in our ministry on our basketball team, on the golf course, in our ministry in our workplace. And Christ is our example. And I'll close by reading to you from 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 21. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. That, beloved, is the standard. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you for giving us everything we need pertaining to the inner man, pertaining to the inner woman, pertaining to life and godliness. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that you've left us in this world to be salt, to 
retard the, the rotting of this present misery of the sin-strayed world and to be lights like a city of lights up on a hill with the good news of the forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that we would continue to excel yet more, to grow in the grace and knowledge of you as our Lord and Savior in everything we do and even particularly with the focus here this morning, our ministry in the workplace. Be glorified in Santan Bible Church. Be, as we gather together, be glorified as Santan Bible Church scatters into our neighborhood and around the community. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing. Amen.